From South Carolina Public Radio, this is Walter Edgar's Journal. I'm Walter Edgar, welcoming you to our podcast series about South Carolina culture and history, with a nod to all things Southern. Today, Alfred Turner and I will talk with Steve Procco, author of Captured Freedom. Captured Freedom is the true story of nine Union prisoners of war who escaped from a Confederate prison in Columbia, South Carolina in November 1864. They traveled north in brutal winter conditions, more than 300 miles, with search parties and bloodhounds hot on their trail. On that difficult journey, they relied on the help of enslaved men and women as well as Union sympathizers before finally reaching Union lines in Knoxville, Tennessee on New Year's Day, 1865. On that day, hoping to commemorate what they had accomplished, the nine officers and three mountain guides found a local photographer and posed together for a photograph. That instant, frozen in time, showed 12 ragged men with determination strong on their faces. A compelling image that moved Steve Pronko to search for their stories. Steve, before we get into the book, let's talk a little bit about yourself. Well, my career has been as a filmmaker. Um, I've been doing that for 40 years and done everything from commercial work to documentaries and such. Uh, the last couple of years, I had produced a show for public television that aired uh, in over 100 stations across the country that was dealing with financial literacy. After uh, getting that launched, uh, I started researching for docu- another documentary, and it led to me deciding to write books. And this is my second one. Yes. And your first book is Rebel Correspondent, right? That's correct. Rebel Correspondent is a true uh, story of a private in the uh, 4th Georgia Cavalry. Okay. To the subject at hand. On the cover of your book, we're dealing with an incredible photograph and the beginning of the story. So let's start from there. How did you get the photograph and what piqued your interest? Well, when I was finishing my first book, I was involved in a lot of promotional work for it and had a lot of discussions back and forth with people on the internet. And uh, one day this uh, gentleman popped up in uh, in one of the messenger services and uh, started asked me questions about the book. And then he shared this photograph and he said, what do you think of this photograph? And I looked at it and I'd never seen it before. And I, I thought it was very intriguing. It's a picture of 12 very ragged men posing together. And, uh, the, the, the guy said, well, the guy on the far left in the middle is my great, great uncle, uh, David Ledford. And, uh, he was helping a group of union soldiers, escape from prison in Columbia, South Carolina, and make their way through to the North Carolina mountains in the middle of winter, eventually crossing over Union lines and getting their, making their way to Knoxville, Tennessee. And so um, it turned out that the guy was a neighbor uh, living just three miles from me, and yet I, I didn't know that at the time. And I, I looked at the picture, and I looked at the faces of the men, and I just thought, man, there's a great story here, I think. And so I kind of said, do you mind if I dig into it a little bit further and uh, try to get 
you know, identifications, proper identifications on all of the men. And so that's what led to the the beginning idea for what became Captured Freedom. And I have to, I have to say, Steve, that this is a compelling photograph. Uh, even before you find out everything these men have been through, and w- that, of course, is, you know, part of the story of the book, the the their dress, their demeanor, the looks on their faces, they're not in uniform of any sort that I can tell, although they may be wearing pieces of uniforms. But the look on their faces, it's just compelling. Yeah, they, they've definitely been through a lot, you can tell mm-hmm. from that. And interestingly, there's, of the 12, nine are union officers. Three are guides from North Carolina that they met along the way that then continued with them and helped them to freedom in Tennessee. That's what I felt too. And then the other thing is when you look at a picture like this, that was taken 150 plus years ago, you kind of like have a bias of how old are these guys? You know, they all look kind of ragged and old. You don't get a perception of age, I think, because we're used to our society and what people look like today. But for the most part, these guys are all in their 20s. There's even one, one of the guides who's only 14 years old. And as I started to peel away the layers and find out the stories on each of these men and their guides, it was it was apparent that there, this was a story that was meant to be told. You know, they have that saying, every picture tells a story, and this picture had many stories to tell. Hmm. Well, what I found fascinating is once you began to track down the photograph, uh, it's misidentified in the National Archives. Library of Congress is misidentified in a Chicago collection, Confederate POWs. That was definitely interesting when, especially with Chicago, uh, in getting that information that they were identifying them as members of Morgan's Raiders who had been housed at Camp Douglas in Chicago. So that was the the reasons, I believe, that they tried, that they had that identification. But it led me to reach out to them. And of course, they were they were pushing back right from the start and saying, you have to show us proof to, you know, make, make us believe this, which I did. And and the reason the Chicago connection was there was because of one of the men in the picture. Uh, the guy in the bottom left, his name was Mark M. Bassett. And after the war, he became a lawyer and then he became a member of the Illinois legislature and then a two term senator. Uh, state senator from Illinois, and was very involved in Chicago. And it also is another full circle aspect of the story. One of the prisons that they first were housed in was in Richmond, and it was called Libby Prison. Uh, Libby Prison was in the late 19th century purchased by a Chicago candy maker who was a Civil War buff. He took apart the prison in Richmond brick by brick and shipped it on tra- by train to Chicago and reassembled it and made it a Civil War museum around 1889. And for hmm. about 10 years, it actually pulled in a, a pretty good number of people. And so that gentleman, Mark Bassett, in the bottom left, lent this picture to them to display in the museum. So... That's the Chicago connection to well, this picture. And, of course, the Libby prison in Richmond was an old tobacco warehouse. It was one of 
Well, most Civil War prisons, north and south, were notorious, uh, but Libby was with that. I want to briefly tell where these, these guys were from because the Union officers were from all over the Union. Iowa, Kentucky, one was with the 19th U.S. Colored Troops, West Virginia, and those guys from Iowa had actually been captured in Mississippi much before they ended up in South Carolina. As you mentioned, they were in, in Richmond. But as the Confederacy began to collapse, the Confederacy began to send POWs from different parts of the, of the South to South Carolina. There was a big prison in Charleston. There was a very large prison camp in Florence, South Carolina, after Andersonville, one of the largest prison camps in the Confederacy. And there was Camp Sorghum in Columbia, which, as you pointed out, really wasn't officially a site. And I think we need to talk about Camp Sorghum a little bit because that's where all of these guys, except one, ended up getting together. The progression was uh, that these soldiers were not captured together. They were all in different regiments, as you mentioned. And so, therefore, they ended up in different places. About half of them started out in Libby. And during their time in Libby, there was an attempted raid on Richmond to try to free them. And so the Confederate government decided it wasn't safe to keep them in the capital of the Confederacy. They moved them down to Macon, Georgia, then to Charleston. And then in October of 1864, they moved basically 1,400 men by train to what was Camp Sorghum. Camp Sorghum was on the west side of Columbia right at the point where the Saluda and the Congaree River meet. And it was basically a large open field. There was no housing of any sort. There wasn't even potable water. They marched these guys into that space and, you know, they had to fend for themselves. They literally had to build their own shelters. A lot of them were digging holes and covering it with pine branches as shelter. And the governor of South Carolina, uh, Millage Bonham, uh, complained to Richmond because nobody wanted the prisoners close to Columbia. And so there was even plans and talks about moving them all north about 20 or 30 miles to another site, but it never came to fruition. Well, as you say, the camp that they created, make do shelters, dug holes to stay warm, because it was a fairly cold winter. Unbelievably cold, I guess, from today's standards. Uh, eventually, when they escaped, that became an issue. But yes, they were in this hor- horrible situation where uh, they were guarded by about 75 guards that were placed every 25 feet, forming a circle around them with them in the middle and a dead line 20 feet away from the line of the guards. And it was, it was pretty awful, uh, aside from the fact that these men had already been through months and months and months as prisoners in other camps. So they were suffering uh, from malnutrition. The majority of them had scurvy. And there was then, you know, some of the other diseases from unsanitary conditions that they had to deal with. Okay. Two things. You mentioned the deadline, and it was, if you cross that line, you would be shot. Yes. But- The other side of this was that the guards that were being used were really the remaining manpower that they can pull together to guard these prisoners. It was a pretty leaky prison. Yes. 
in, in fact, some over 3,000 Union POWs escaped in South Carolina in the last months of the war. Yeah, and from Camp Sorghum, which really only existed from October to December, really just over two months, there were over 300 men that escaped during that time. And the reason that it was called Camp Sorghum by the prisoners was because of the diet they were fed. Yes, the the diet uh, by now, at this point in the war, both sides had issues with how they were treating prisoners. And I think part of it came from the fact that neither side expected to have these numbers of prisoners to have to contend with. So by the time Camp Sorghum uh, came around, they were supplying the prisoners with an incredibly meager amount of food. One of the things was sorghum syrup, which mm. they provided each prisoner approximately a cup a day. Problem was that these men, many of them didn't have cups, so they literally cupped it in their hands uh, in, in some cases. They were given rancid meat, like salt pork, and usually poorly made cornbread, a chunk of it that that you know was made for them. Uh, and it wasn't every day that they can expect that. So these men were starving, and uh, the only thing that really helped them uh, was the fact that there were settlers from Colombia selling their wares, most of it being food, to the soldiers if the soldiers had money to buy it. And they also had a system that wasn't perfect, but it did supply uh, packages sent from the north by the families and friends of the prisoners that were oftentimes food-based uh, items. And so those were the, that's kind of how they, they survived with food. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a good system. All right. And in, in December, you mentioned they move into the edge of the city of Columbia by the state asylum. It was a situation where one of the higher-ups out of Richmond came down and saw the conditions at Camp Sorghum. And decided right then and there they they needed to move these prisoners into a safer situation. And so Camp Sorghum came to an end. It was uh, General John H. Winder was the was the the general from Richmond. He was pretty much in charge of the entire prison system for the Confederacy. And uh, he moved them to the what was the old insane asylum in Columbia. And that is that camp became known as Camp Asylum. And that's where other prisoners came, and the group that would flee from Columbia congregated. They they coalesced. They coalesced. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The men in the picture they escaped at different times in November of 1864, and the first of them to escape uh, escaped in a group of nine men, and they made their way up the Saluda River watershed towards North Carolina with the ultimate goal of reaching Union lines in Tennessee. So you had these men escaping from roughly November 10th to like November 28th. The initial group of these guys of nine, they ended up splitting up because nine was too visible. So that that was where they ended up with just like a group of three, a group of four, a group of two. And then uh, the other guys were one or two at a time. In one case, there was the guys from the 5th Iowa, all three of them escaped together. Um, in, and, uh, and, and in they the knew, part. the prisoner yeah. underground knew that Western North Carolina, for the most part, was pro-union, uh, very contested, but 
that's where they were hoping to find certain maybe guide or sanctuary to get over the mountains into East Tennessee and Knoxville where there was where where there were union forces yeah and and they uh they made their way up to what is Transylvania County which is south of Asheville uh was the first batch of prisoners and there they found a uh a sheriff of the county who was a unionist, but at the same time, he was a member of the home guard. So he was actually spying on the home guard, knowing where they where they were and where they were looking and was able to move the prisoners around and prevent them from being captured. Uh, he had uh, a whole, you could call it an underground railroad for prisoners uh, that had escaped uh, and would point them and have men, help them through, you know, the mountains. Uh, one of the men there was uh, Joseph Sisson, and he's one of the men in the photograph. Uh, he was the first of the guides that they, they came across. And then they ended up going, some of the, some prisoners ended up going north, you know, in other groups in getting to Knoxville by going around what would be present day Smoky Mountain National Park. But these guys went due west and so they went from Transylvania County down into Cashiers Valley, where the 14-year-old boy lived, and then across to the far western part of North Carolina, which is Hayesville, Murphy, North Carolina, where they picked up the third guy, Ledford was his last name. And that was another mystery in this picture, because this whole picture came to me because a descendant of what was described as David Ledford was uh, in the photograph. And it turned out right away that I discovered that wasn't David because the picture was taken on the 2nd of January, 1865. And David had been killed on December 11th, 1864. So it set about a whole thing of trying to figure out who this guy was. And it, it turned out that he was a cousin of David's. His name was Kit Ledford. Even today in that part of North Carolina, if you were pro-union or, or pro-secession, there were hard and fast family lines that uh, still don't speak to one another. They divide the cemetery. That's exactly right. Uh, wow. The, the, the 14-year-old boy, um, his name is uh, T.R. Zachary, Thompson Roberts Zachary. And um, his father... What, they came from a large family, and his father was a unionist, but all his brothers were Confederates. And so his grandfather, who was living at the time, set up a rule that said, no unionist will be buried in our family cemetery. And so T.R.'s father took a piece of land a quarter mile north of where that cemetery was and created a, a, a unionist cemetery for the Zacharies. So there's two Zachary cemeteries now, upper and lower Zachary Cemetery, and you know which one you're in and, and who they supported in the war by being in either of those two. Those who came from the asylum, a very cold winter, they go about, it's 360 miles that they journeyed from Columbia, South Carolina to Knoxville, Tennessee, in a very cold situation. In rags, they are pictured in rags because that's what they were wearing when they got to the Union lines, and they had already been issued new uniforms. Mm -hmm. And several of them decided, we're going to have a picture taken, not in our fancy uniforms, 
but in what we escaped. So, yes, they are in rags, and that's what they crossed the mountains in. I think they wanted to commemorate their success. Yeah. When they had that photograph taken. And yes, that's exactly what is described in one of the diaries that I used in writing this book that is was uh, well, kept by one of the men. You know, Steve, once you started your research, well, some of these guys had published their memoirs, so to speak, in local papers, uh, but you uncovered letters, diaries, things that uh, really had not been brought together in one spot. Yeah, and I would also look for the diaries of other prisoners because these guys were around them and they were mentioned in uh, other men's writings. There was one gentleman in particular who was a member of the 5th Iowa also. The 5th Iowa was all captured at the Battle of Chattanooga. They, like, they took most of the, of the regiment uh, as prisoners. And one of the men, his name was Samuel Hawkins Marshall, Byers. He's basically known as Marsh Byers. He was the adjutant and he kept a diary and wrote several books after the war. He actually became very famous because while a prisoner at Asylum Prison, he coined the term Sherman's March to the Sea and wrote a poem about it just before Christmas 1864. Another prisoner that was with him set it to music and it was smuggled out of Camp Asylum right after Christmas in the wooden leg of Lieutenant Daniel Tower, who was in the second (laughs) Iowa. And as soon as he got back to the North, the Northern newspapers published it. And it it, it became, if you want to call it that, a top 40 Civil War hit immediately. (laughs) People were singing the tune throughout the North. And when Sherman marched into Columbia in February 1865, Byers, who was at the asylum, had hidden to avoid being moved by the Confederates because they had tried to move all the other prisoners away from uh, Sherman's approaching army. And so Byers stood on the steps of Asylum Prison and watched Sherman's men march down the streets singing his song. And he had no idea that it was a, a, a quite a hit. So he's an interesting character that's not in the photograph, but was connected to the men in the 5th Iowa and therefore wrote about them and the conditions that they all experienced together. And that was important to triangulate Mm -hmm. the story by looking at what other prisoners had written because they were all in the same places at the same time. And it, it allowed me to triangulate and kind of have a second source to confirm what happened. Well, you not only tell their story, it doesn't end in January 1865, uh, some of them kept in contact over time. Yeah, they all had lives after the war. One of them died in 1865. That's Thomas Young. He was he was a pretty young man, but he had contracted uh, typhoid in the first year of the war and never really recovered from it. And he died in October of 1865 in Kentucky. But all of the other men, you know, they all had interesting lives. I would I would say today we would say they all suffered from PTSD in some way or another. And some of the men experienced severe wounding in the war. One, one had been uh, shot in the head and had constant headaches and, and things like that. So you had 
different levels of success. Some of them went on to be, as I mentioned, the one being a successful attorney and state legislator. Another one uh, was a very successful retail merchant in the Dakota territories. He's Michael Hoffman, the one that had kept the diary that really helped me pin down a lot of the things that were going on in their escape. And then you had uh, you had a guy that was became a pharmacist, but two or three of them had some, you know, definite problems and their lives were never the same. And and those were interesting to see where they went. One of the men, he he spent the 1880s and early 1890s in Kansas as an actor and he wrote plays that were civil war themed. And in one of the plays he named the lead character Kit Ledford after Kit Ledford, who helped him and some of the other guys escape. So you had those kind of interesting bits of information. And yes, several of them got together for small reunions. Major William Stanhope Marshall is the, is the highest ranked officer in the photograph. He ended up going back to Iowa. Where he was in the 5th Iowa as well. His first wife died relatively quickly after they got married. She got sick. And then he remarried and moved to Chattanooga and lived three or four miles from where he had been captured, but became a very prominent citizen in Chattanooga. He was a a well-known attorney, but he was involved in a lot of things, you know, bringing Chattanooga back from the Civil War and uh, even involved in the electrification process of Chattanooga in the late 1800s. One of the guides felt he had been promised something by one of the men he rescued, and he corresponded and basically said, when are you going to pay up? Yeah, that was T.R. Zachary, the 14-year-old boy. He had been uh, kind of promised if, you, if, you, if we're successful and you get, us, you get us to freedom, you know, we'll all pitch in some money and help you go to college. That never happened. But T.R.'s uh, descendants, he has a great granddaughter who's living today. She's an octogenarian, lives in Cashers Valley. And when I reached out to her, she also happened to be uh, a writer as well and very much into the family genealogy. And she mentioned to me, well, I have the letters that were written between T.R. and Mark Bassett, and I'll share them with you. After the war, he ended up in Kansas as well, living in a sod house, farming his 40 acres. He eventually did come back to cashiers. But those letters are quite interesting in a lot of ways because it talks about how Mark Bassett really, you know, constantly thought about what he had been through with that escape and wanted to go back and actually trace part of the route and was asking, is that possible? And he eventually did do that in the 1890s, uh, where he went back and he, and he visited the three guides that are in this photograph Mm. and, um, uh, you know, spent some time with them. And we've, we've got to wrap up here in a second, but I want to ask, having gone through this story, did you take anything away from either their stories or, or what you discovered writing the book? To me, it's, a true story of individual people. These were officers, these were the guides, and what their lives were like during the war. And they're like us today. I mean, when one of the men was first in prison, his wife was told that he had died in battle. 
And it took months and months before she discovered that he was alive. Mm-hmm. And by then she had moved on to somebody else. And that caused great harm to his family. He had three young children with her before the war started. So you find those kind of stories in this bigger story. We've always heard of the Civil War, and we always visualize it from the major battles. This is a personal story of survival for each of the men. And that, to me, was what was compelling in writing it. Beautifully told and beautifully said. Steve Procco, the author of Captured Freedom, the epic true Civil War story of Union POW officers escaping from a Southern prison. Thanks for joining Alfred and me today on The Journal. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. You know, they say every picture tells a story. The photograph that compels Steve Procco to write Captured Freedom tells many stories. The stories of the nine Union POWs and their struggle to survive in the brutal conditions of their prison. The story of their escape and the difficult journey to freedom. The stories of the enslaved men and women, as well as Union sympathizers who helped them and the stories of these soldiers and their guides after the war. All these stories are part of the history of our nation and of South Carolina history. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Alfred Turner, and I produce the show, which is made possible by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Remember, the views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio or its underwriters. New episodes of Walter Edgar's journal are published on the first and third Fridays of the month and are available on SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org, on the SCETV app, as well as your favorite podcast provider. We'll talk again soon.